James chapter 4, verse 11. We're coming to the end of these one another passages. Next week, uh, I believe, is going to be our final one that we're going to look at. But just as I was preparing this, this morning and looking at James chapter 4, it became obvious to me, and this has probably already been obvious to you, I'm just slow learner on this, is how many of these that we're dealing with have to do with our mouth and our speech, and how often that issue comes up in Scripture. And so that's, a, that's an issue, it's a real issue, it's one we struggle with, it's one we face. So listen to what... What God's Word says, this is James chapter 4, in verse 11. This is the Word of God. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There is quite a bit packed in this, these two verses. James is very practical. It's, it's, it's considered in many ways the wisdom literature of the New Testament. You see so many things reminiscent of the Proverbs in the book of James. But this this. These two verses are just packed full of practical guidance for us. Let's just start with the command. What it means to speak evil against one another is that we are not to slander our brother. We're not to slander them. And that's a command throughout the scriptures. But the words that are translated in the ESV as speak evil against, it's actually this one word which is in Greek a compound word, and the first part of that is against, and the second part is speak, and they're put together. And so, literally, it's speak against. Do not speak against your brother. And it's an imperative, so that means this is a command, that we're not supposed to speak against one another. That, we can figure out very simply what that means, False accusations against someone bearing false witness, speaking with the intent of harm, attacking the reputation of another person. These are all examples of what it would mean to speak evil against a person. So, verse 11 begins with an imperative, which is an imperative not to slander. And it's in the context of the church, because you'll notice This is addressed or commanded towards our treatment of our brother. MacArthur says this in his commentary on James. He says on the word slander, it refers to mindless, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory, untrue speech directed against others. So you think of how sometimes we're flippant with our words. I would think of that idea of that mindless talk or thoughtless or careless Type of speech. Now, the context of this flows out of verse 10. If you look at verse 10, just back up, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So what we see here is directly after this call to humble ourselves is what destroys humility or an example of something that is lacking in humility. And so humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How do you live a life that is not humble? Well, you speak evil against others. And so to speak evil against others is a lack of humility. It's actually something that is prideful. So if you th- think of this as slander is a prideful action. And why is slander a prideful action? Because slander then, coming from the slanderer, puts themselves above that other person. They have now elevated themselves in a position that is, is the authority or is the judge over someone else. So they elevate themselves at the expense of someone else. That's not hu- humility. That is not acting in humbleness. It is in pride that one places themselves as a judge and the arbiter of truth over someone when they slander. And the whole context deals with this idea of judging someone. So someone, when they slander, has placed themselves as the judge of humanity. Think of that. And that's what they do when they slander. It involves unlawful judgment, which makes one, one's judgment itself superior to the law. And that's what he goes on to say. Look at what it says after. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers, We know what that means. You're not to slander. You're not to bear false witness. You're not to accuse. You're not to hurt someone's reputation. We got that. Look what he says. Here's the implication of when we do that. And this is where we need to fill this weight. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So that's what our slander is, is actually a judgment of the law itself. Judgment is not that of making wise decisions or dealing with sin. That's not the type of judgment that it's talking about, because we all make judgments every day about everything. I see someone coming at me with a knife or a gun, I'm going to make a judgment. And you should too. This is not that type of judgment. If someone's in sin and I call them out, It's not that type of judgment. This is what Jesus is speaking about. It's rather an unjust condemnation of a person. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. In probably the most abused portion of Scripture, in Scripture, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You are not the one that judges condemnation on a person. And we are not to judge hypocritically, is Jesus' point. And by the way, when we, when, we don't, when we think this means you can't judge at all, well, read verse 6. 
Verse 6, Jesus is actually telling us to make a judgment. When he says, do not give to dogs what is holy. How do I know someone's a dog? And that's a very big insult. Unless I've made some sort of judgment on that person and why I don't give them the glories of the gospel. Well, you have to make a judgment. So clearly he's not saying an outline all judgment. But how is it that we can judge the law? How can we judge the law? Notice what he says in chapter 2, in verse 8. This is in James. Judging the law is us deciding which aspects of the law that we want to keep or follow. That's what it means to judge the law. So look what it says in chapter 2. Verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if we are to place ourselves over the law or to judge the law, it would be to look at the law and say this. I'm going to practice this one here, but over here I'm not going to practice this one. That's what it means to judge the law. You feel the weight of those implications. That holy God who created you and gives you a law, and we're speaking, I would speak of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that flow out of the very nature and character of God himself, we're going to then say, hmm, I don't need to keep that one Maybe I'll keep this one when it's convenient. We've become a a judge of the law itself. And if we place ourselves in a place of judging the law, then we actually place ourselves as being above who? The lawgiver. We now make a judgment upon the one who has given us the law, God himself. Okay. This is all tied to what? Do not what? Do not speak evil against one another. The whole point is that James is drawing out for us is this, is when we sin, we have become a judge of the law. This is for Christians. This is applied to Christians that we have become a judge of the law. And if we've become a judge of the law, we've become a what? Judge of the lawgiver. So think about that. Anytime slander, we're, we're all guilty of slander at some point in our life. Anytime slander has come out of our mouth, we have just judged God's law, judging the lawgiver. Do you feel that weight? But that's the implication of it. If we place ourselves above the law and at our own discretion we pick and choose which laws we want to follow, 
we have made ourselves above God. I just want to theologically tease out why that is so bad. It should be obvious, but here's what I want us to hear. The law is good, I am bad. That's it. The law is good and I am bad. In fact, we see in 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good. One uses it lawfully. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I don't have those descriptions of my humanity in the book of Romans. I actually see that I'm not righteous and I have the venom of asps in me. But the law, on the other hand, is described as being holy, righteous. So you think of the audacity of me, me, Rob, here, to slander someone, judge the law, when I am told in the scripture about my nature, and then I'm told that the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. I can almost picture here in back in James the attitude of someone, because I've got this attitude, where you look at somebody and you would say, Look what somebody else is doing, but I would never do that. And That's the form of slander, right? It is, absolutely. And because Bet you would do that. That's right. And you probably have already, and you'll probably do it in future. And that, but that's me. Yeah. And instead of saying, be it for grace, there go I, we say, I, I wouldn't have done that. Right. That's right. So you, it's basically self-condemnation, and you put yourself under the law. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. The law is good. This is what the Bible says about me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, that's my before Christ. I still walk in this flesh. Even though we're given a new nature in Christ and the old nature is dead, it is being perfected until we're glorified. It doesn't reach perfection until we reach glorification. And because I'm not glorified, there remains in me sinfulness that I have to continue to fight. But the law, rather, is eternal and transcendent and true and always good. So the first thing I have to recognize is when I consider that is what the law is and who I am. The law does not, let's just be clear about something, does the law justify us? You all better scream no. The law does not justify us. If, it, if the law could justify us, then we'd be in trouble. And the law doesn't sanctify us either, does it? But it, it does give us direction. In Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure by guiding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, this law, while it does not justify us, and it does not sanctify us, it does give us direction. 
in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says this, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, heart, and lives. So when we look about how to live our lives with our neighbor, where should we look? The law. I mean, not only did we see that the law is good, that I am bad, but even in a confession of faith of Baptist, it says this, that it actually helps guide us in our walk. The Heidelberg Catechism says this about the law, no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so poignantly? First, so that... The longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the eager, more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. In other words, the more that we see the law and we read what James is writing, the more that afflicts our heart and we recognize our need for Christ. How many of us are guilty of every single one of these one another negatives that we've read? You don't have to raise your hand. I already know. And so the more that we interact with this, the more we realize, oh, we are fallen. We are sinful. And that should draw us to where? To follow more law? No, it should draw us to Christ. And in Him, we have a desire to do what? Follow that law. The Heidelberg Catechism goes on to say, Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, which is perfection. I want you to notice what it says, is the more that we interact with this law that God says is good, it says that we pray to God for His grace that we would strive to keep it. So how do you keep the law? By His grace, right? Relying upon Him. Relying upon Him. So, when we short-circuit God's intended means of guidance and direction for how to live in a fallen world, we say, this is a better way to live than how God has designed it. Because look what James says. If anyone slanders his neighbor or his brother, he becomes a judge of the law and puts himself above the law. We short-circuit then God's means of directing us and guiding us in our lives. It's, It's as if this, you know, have you ever put together a complex project? This happens almost every Christmas Eve where I take the girls' presents and I go to start putting them together and I'm not looking at the directions and I mess it up and I I mess this up and okay, I'll finally look and read the directions. I go, oh, I missed like five steps there. Well, I short-circuited the plan and I made a mess of it. And oftentimes people make shipwreck of it, right? Right? So the very means that God has given us to guide us, when we actually sin against God, we're saying, our plan is better than your plan. 
Except for unlike, you know, the last minute Christmas present that you're trying to put together, this is our soul. This is our soul we're talking about. So we short-circuit God's intended means of guidance and direction for how to live in a falling, fallen world. <clears throat> There's something else about this that I just want us to feel the weight of missing what James's point is here. Is it's an inconsistent way to live. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, you know the point Jesus is making, having a stable house that won't be swept away. He says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's your living through life. You face storms, you face trials, you face tragedy in your life. But if your house is built upon that rock, the house remains. That's the point. Notice the house. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We reap what we sow. And if we sow bad seeds, guess what's going to come up? If we build upon sand, guess what's going to happen? When those things in life hit us, they're go- it's going to crumble before us. We won't be able to bear the weight of it because we're on sand, and sand is not a stable thing. So it's an inconsistent way to live, to put ourselves as judge over the law, but it's also hypocritical. For when we find ourselves in a position of being sinned against, what do we want to do? If I was in the position of someone slandering me, but yet I was a slanderer, what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to cry out injustice. How could that person sin against me? By what, what standard am I using to make the judgment that they sinned against me? The very law that I have put myself over to judge. That's being a hypocrite. That's the first thing hypocrites do is when they experience a sin against themselves is they cry foul, that person's sinning against me. But yet they disregard that very law that they have judged. This goes a little bit further, James makes it. He says, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And he goes on to say this, that it actually turns into a matter of blasphemy. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. The Lord our God is what? One. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The Lord our God is one. God is the lawgiver, thus God is the ultimate judge. When we place ourselves over God's law, we ultimately assume God's place as lawgiver and judge. 
So what command is broken then by, say, by speaking evil against one another according to verse 12? According to verse 12, if we commit the sin, the, the sin of bearing false witness, what sin do we commit actually? Which commandment do we break? The first one. There shall have no other gods before me. Look at his point. His point is this. We have made ourselves what? God. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We'll be tipped over like Dagon in the temple there. That's that's a striking and poignant statement to say that if we slander our brother, which is so easy to do, that we've actually broken the first commandment of thou shalt have no other gods before me. But that's exactly what the text tells us. Remember, I think it was last week where we looked at the interconnectedness in the moral law between the first table of the law, which is our, our, our law towards God, and then the second table of the law, which is towards neighbor, We saw how they're interconnected. I can't have one without the other. I can't love my neighbor without loving God, and I can't love God without loving my neighbor. Well, you see here, James even makes it even more more emphatic, the interconnectedness of them by this statement, that we are to have no other gods before me, but when we slander our brother, we are making ourselves God. Look how he... Ends this, he who is able to save and destroy. And you think of Jesus' words where fear him who is able to destroy life and, and body and in hell. But he goes on to say this, and this is what we need to hear. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So as you read that, emphasize the you. But who are you? We've already established we're not God. We've already established the law, the lawgiver is good. We've already established that, well, we're bad. So he says, who are you? Let me, let me just break this down for us. Who are you? You are a person in need of grace as well. You are a person that is in need of grace. What do we, what do we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? You, you don't even have to turn there. You can just say it. What is Ephesians 2, 8? For by grace you have been saved. There's no one that comes to salvation apart from grace. It's by grace that we are saved. So who are you? You, along with every other Christian, is one in need of grace. You are in need of grace for your salvation, and you are in need of grace for, to, to keep you through until the end when, when Christ glorifies you. There's no aspect of our lives that is not in need and desperate of grace. So who are you? Just, just 
asking what, and letting the Scripture answer. We're a person who's fallen short of fulfilling the law. Just like the person that we may slander. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, in other words, the person that I might slander because of something that maybe we want to harm their reputation or destroy it somehow by the standard of the law, actually we've all fallen short of following the law. So, when he asks, who are you? How could we answer that? Well, what about 1 John 1.10? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, I can't elevate myself to be someone's judge because I've sinned. And if I say I haven't sinned, guess what I have now entered into? I've entered into the act of, of lying. But think of how Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So who am I? Is I'm a person that continually transgresses the law. Yeah, who, who am I? Who are you, as it says? Let me point out something in verse 11 and 12 that tells us who we are. And let me just rephrase it this way. Who are you? You are a person that has been brought supernaturally into unity with Christ. And by virtue of that union with Christ, I am in brotherly union with other Christians. It is a supernatural act of God, of regeneration, that brings us into union, that we are adopted children, and we are all under that. And guess what? Family doesn't slander family. Not supposed to. Notice the threefold repetition of brother in verse 11. Do not speak against one another brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Then look at verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The emphasis is this idea of family that exists there. And just as we wouldn't slander our, our family, we're actually brought into this greater family, this greater unity that is not by uh, natural blood, but is by the blood of Christ. Now, it's clear what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to speak evil. And we see what the implications of that is. Let me say just briefly what evil speaking evil is not. Speaking evil is not calling... Calling out sin is not evil. That's not speaking evil. So calling out sin and love for the purpose of restoration is not considered evil. So are we allowed to call out sin and may people say that that's slanderous? Sure. But it's not. 1 Corinthians 5.3 For although I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. It's pretty harsh language. Paul is not being slanderous there. He's not playing the judge as in the role of God. He's calling out sin that existed in the church. That's not slander. We shouldn't think of it. It's not slander to make judgments between two brothers. 1 Corinthians 6, 5. We could spend a lot of time in Corinthians. They had a lot of problems. 
It says this in chapter 6, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, that is to judge between brothers? Or think about what Paul says in chapter 5 again. Go back there in verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. And he's talking about that person that was in flagrant sin and unrepented of it. And he calls it out publicly. And he says that you need to tell this guy to leave. Also, it's not slanderous. And it's not that judgment that is condemned in Scripture when we actually withhold the truths of the gospel from someone. That might sound shocking, but again, look at what Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Many people debate what that means. I I would encourage you to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this, where he says, look when Jesus was silent. He did not throw pearls before pigs. He was silent before his accusers. And I think that we can understand what that means there by just simply looking at what Jesus did or when Jesus was quiet. Slander is not exposing sin publicly. You know, oftentimes we think about confronting someone in private, and that's true. But is there ever a time to confront someone publicly? Well, God's Word says so. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So there's times when publicly you may have to call someone out with sin, and guess what? They might feel like they're being slandered, but they're not. They're being called out for sin, just as God's Word tells us to do that. Those things are not speaking evil. Those things are not making ourselves a judge of the law. Those things are actually following God's direction for us. And here's the thing, is that loving our neighbor actually requires this. If we go back to James is the one who told us what fulfilling that royal law is, is of loving our neighbor. So, how do we deal with slander and the struggle of it? Let me give you a few things to think about. Recognize what slander implies. Reflect upon that. What slander implies and what we would have to assume of ourselves when we do slander. We assume of ourselves to be above the law, which ultimately makes us above the lawgiver which then places us in the position of God. So remember that when we go to slander. Second thing is this, is remember our need for grace and our union with Christ that brings us into union with others. That we are in union with Christ. That is the the most used description of what it means to be a Christian who is one who is in Christ. And if we're in Christ, guess what? We're in Christ together. Christ is with us. 
By His Spirit, He dwells with us. He walks among His churches. He, Christ, by His blood, has brought us into union. But when slander takes place, repent and ask for forgiveness. If you find yourselves where you're guilty of slander, stop doing it and ask for forgiveness. As James writes, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It takes a lot of humility to go to someone and say, hey, I slandered you. Now, would you forgive me? I'm sorry I did that. It was wrong of me. And here's the other thing. If you're slandered against, it gets brought up. Let grace reign in that moment and let forgiveness take place and then move on from it. Don't hang on to it. Let it go. And finally this, pray that God's grace, by God's grace, that you look to Christ as your example and as the one who has forgiven us of slander. Because guess what Christ never did? Christ never slandered. What do we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So you just pause there and reflect on it. We see all of these commandments that have something to do with our speech and what we say. What do we see of our Savior? He never once had deceit in his mouth. He never once sinned. So not only is he our example, but because he never sinned, because he never slandered, in him we find forgiveness for our slandering goes on to say, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so if you find yourself at the hands of a slanderer, take encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced that as well, but did not return, but just continued to entrust himself to his heavenly Father. That is our example. That is our salvation. That is our Lord that provided these things for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. It is holy as we have seen. And Father, we know we fall short of your glory in so many different ways. And so we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who never sinned. No deceit was found in his mouth. Uh, He was perfect to your will in all ways and is our great high priest who stands in our place that we may be righteous, that we may be forgiven of the times where there's been deceit in our mouth, where we have reviled when we should not have. And so we praise you for your great mercy on us, your people. Give us hearts, Father, to speak words that are edifying to, as your word says, speak truth in love. May that be our speech with one another. We pray for your grace. We need it in order to do these things. As we depart from here, we ask you to prepare our hearts for when we would gather to worship you on the Lord's day this coming week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.